Welcome back to another great episode of the Uncharted Podcast. This is Poya. I have my good friend, Paul Albert, who is the SVP of sales of a great company I've gotten to know this year called Payhawk. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Poya. It's great to be here. And, and quite frankly, I'm really excited to be here. Excited to have you. Paul, we'd like to kick it off with a quick personal business bio. Give us a little bit of context of who Paul is and how you ended up in the UK. Yeah, sure. As you said, my name is Paul Albert, Canadian by birth. And growing up, I was thinking about this. I moved 22 times by the time I was 18. My dad was a sales guy. I, was, I went to seven elementary schools, five different high schools. I was always used to introducing myself to new people, new social groups, and getting used to that sort of change. I think by definition, I was born into this, and I'm one of the few people I know that kind of like gravitated towards a sales career early in my life. You know, my first jobs were selling flowers door to door. Three tulips for three dollars. I got to keep a dollar for every bouquet I sold, and that puts money in my pocket. When I was you know 14, 13, 14 years old, sold hot dogs and, and pop at everyone stadium in Hamilton, Ontario, which is the Canadian football league. So, you know, it kind of grew, it grew up in the environment for a brief time. I thought I wanted to be a chef. I uh, worked in the kitchen, realized that the pay and the hours weren't real, really aligned to what I wanted to do. And then, you know, through conversations with my brother who finished business school at the time, I decided I wanted to become a VP of sales or software company back in, this is back in the dot-com days. So fought my way into becoming an SDR before that was even a term and worked my way through a couple of tech companies and, and really made my break the company called Vision Critical at the time is now called Alita, Vancouver-based startup. And you know, when I started there, you know, one and a half million ARR, all Canadian customers wanted to break in the US market. Three years after that, in 2008, we were 32 million in ARR and they wanted to expand to Europe. And I put my hand up to be the guy to move to another new country, introduce myself to another social circle and, and launch uh, Vision Critical at the time in Europe out of London. And yeah, 14 years later, here I am. Wow, what a story! I, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna dig into the childhood part just because sure. it, it resonated because I moved around a lot. Like I moved around six, seven different countries, and as a kid, that impacts you, right? So, looking back, how do you think that's impacted you in your life? Like moving around so much, how has that made Paul the person he is today? There's pros and cons, as there is with with everything. You know, the sense of belonging and you know, a sense of roots and a sense of foundation was lacking, right? And so you're know, always seeking new things and and. It's led to, you know, if you look at my disc profile from a leadership perspective, I'm a pioneer by, by definition, right? And I'm always looking to pioneer and, and that's a good thing, right? But it, it's also resolute and some other factors I've had to work on. And, but it's helped highlight what those are. It's a bit strange, boy, because I wouldn't change anything because it's made me who I am today and where I'm at today. At the same time, my kids are going to be going to the same school for quite some time. I'm not going to do the same thing to them. Especially as a young kid, right? It's, it's really hard to make friends and everything. I always thought it was hard in adulthood. That's what people think, but it's actually way harder sometimes when you go from one place to the next. Especially high school, especially high school, yeah. where social cliques and you know hormones are running high. And yeah, definitely. I got to ask you, as you expanded into Europe and moved over to the US, as a sales rep, like like once you started doing like your early, early part of like expanding into Europe, what were some of like the most surprising lessons you learned? With selling into the US and then selling first primarily into the UK and then a bit more into some other European countries. In the UK, language is very different, even though it's the same language overall. It's not just how they spell, it's what they mean behind what they say. So, you know, if they say British person tends to say, well, that's interesting. They're not really saying that they're interested, right? They're saying that you got some more work to do. So you'd be leaving a meeting thinking like, wow, yeah, I've got a, got a hot opportunity here and not realize actually what's behind it. So there's some nuances from a cultural language standpoint, even in the UK versus the US, they're fundamentally different. That take a little while, while to tease out. And then as you start looking at selling into uh, continental Europe, there are some, some bigger differences at play. It comes down to even when you're hiring and how you hire and how long it takes to hire in Europe is a reflection on how long it takes to, to sell and how long it takes for customers to buy as well, right? There's, there's kind of a, a clear correlation in between employee rights 
and how long things take. I, I think there's good like in Germany or in France, for instance, there's ten, there tends to be more people in the decision process. And they tend to get more granular into the consensus around requirements and building those requirements out and getting things signed off, right? They're much more detailed and structured and um, things just take a little bit longer. And there's a risk aversion that happens with it as well. So I think it's more of the correlation of risk aversion and the employee centricity of employee rights that kind of accumulate into what I found surprising from in the States where you know th- there's a high level of risk, right? People are willing to take a bet on something. And they'll try something out. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, then they'll they'll move on much quicker than, say, someone in Germany or France. If I come to you and say, Paul, hey, what are some of like the top mistakes you've seen companies make as they expand to Europe? And you wish they would know these three things. What would those top like common mistakes yeah. or things that you want to communicate to them be? Coming from North America myself, the first one is treating Europe as a single entity. It's it's not. like I mean, on, on paper, you look at the overall size, GDP, and population, roughly similar to the U.S., but that's comprised of like 30 different countries with 30 different employment laws, 30 different ways of doing business, 30 different cultural nuances. And it's because of that, it's not as easy to scale as fast in Europe, in my perspective, as it is in, in the States. Like, for example, this year at Payhawk, you, we had already offices in Sofia, Bulgaria, where we're headquartered in Barcelona, in Berlin, and in London. We've launched Paris and Amsterdam this year. And, and with that, there's there's a lot of work that comes in to just on how you recruit locally, right? Because it's you can't just recruit from one center if you want to have a local presence, right? If you want to make your brand really local, um, which I think is really salient when you have sales motions for small business and mid-market where you want to have local presence in. If you're a pure play enterprise company, you could probably get away with launching from Europe, for instance, because most of those global enterprises speak English as their business language. So there's a difference depending on what it is you're selling. I think that nuance into that factor, but ultimately it's number one is, it's not a one-to-one ratio from US to Europe. And then secondly, in relation to that, I think it's what we're talking about at the beginning. It's understanding how people buy and the nuances on how people buy, which is slightly different across. hundred percent. And I'm glad, I'm glad you hit, because that was my next question, which is how do you determine if you just build everything out of London versus if you go locally, right? And we've kind of talked about the advantages of some of those. But I'm curious, as you onboard these folks, like for example, you said, hey, we started London and then we went to Berlin, but then now we're doing Paris. Like how much of the onboarding do you own and you have them run the playbook that you ran maybe in London versus allow whoever is going to be the head of sales or the GM for that region to kind of come up with the, come up with their own process. So for us, our enablement team really owns the playbooks. We do that on purpose. But I think even before then, it's, it's first focusing on the data model, right? How are you going to measure countries against each other in a way that you can actually make some good decisions? And the general rule that we've tried to work towards is like a 70-30, 75-25 split. If you want to have things 75, you know, 70-75% standardized across markets, and then leave enough room for localization. For example, Amsterdam, there might be some, or in Netherlands, specific competitors that we've got to enable the teams differently on, or you know, in specifics on how customers might buy you know, longer sales cycles in Germany, for instance, that we'll have to then coach differently, but the fundamental should be relatively the same. Sometimes when you get into these regional offices, or like if you have India versus the US, you kind of, as much as you don't want to, it becomes a little like too competitive where it becomes us versus them mentality. How do you guys ensure that like you have this like one team value where like everyone like knows, hey, at the end of the day, it's like we, all we care about is Payhawk, but you still have this healthy competition between the different offices. It's a super difficult one. And I, I'm not sure I've got like the, there's a silver bullet for it, but um, ultimately I think it comes down to culture, uh, company culture. And, and that starts from the exact, the exact team down, right? They, how the execs live is going to help people see what good looks like. And so having broader leadership globally and or for those markets that's going to set the tone for the culture uh, is the fundamentally fundamentally the starting point then i think it comes down to another key component is your operating cadence of when and how often and what you meet about and and how you set the tone within those meetings in between those those teams 
to foster that cross-regional collaboration. Like you want healthy competition, right? And you want to gamify that a bit to make, to make it so it's it's fun. Because like, I mean, at the end of the day, we're spending more time with our colleagues than we are with our family, right? And so you want to have, like, you want to be challenged, but you want to make sure that teams are, especially revenue teams are doing difficult jobs in difficult environments. They've got to have some levity in what they're doing to be able to keep motivated and, and, and ultimately to perform as high as they can. But there, you've got to draw a line, right? If it's going to be toxic in pitting one region against the other, and they started treating each other as enemies and not as part of the same team, there's probably a cultural issue that you can, as a root cause, that you can tra- track that back down. As you've expanded into these regions, like, do you think it makes sense to hire sales reps at the beginning, sales leaders, sales managers? Like, And this is like outside of Payhawk. If there's a founder listening to this and they're having a lot of success in the US, they have some customers in parts of Europe, like what have you been, what have you seen be a really good test to like expanding into Europe? One of the first things I've seen most successful in previous iterations is sending someone from HQ that knows what good looks like into market, right? Bring somebody, someone in and whether that's just even an, a, a sales rep or, or a sales leader is probably one of the, or someone as a sales leader is probably going to be a great, a great first move because you're going to make sure you've got someone that you trust, right? That they know the culture. They're going to be, they're going to embody the culture throughout that. Now for the first part of the question of whether you hire a sales leader or a sales rep first, I think it depends what your business plan is, right? And what you're looking to achieve. If you're looking to scale quickly, you're, you're going to probably need to get a sales leader in that knows the region, knows the nuances that can then hire the team around them. And ideally having a rep from HQ as part of their team to be able to help them on board as well would be super helpful. But it, it really depends on what your ambition is because both can work. It just depends on what you're looking to actually achieve and how quickly you're looking to achieve it. As you've expanded into these models, how do you know if something's working, if something's not working and take into account some of those like nuances that are very unique to each region? Like for example, maybe some regions take way longer, right? To make decisions than other regions. How do you yep. know when to like pull the plug on something uh, versus accelerate it and make those make those type of decisions? What have you learned? The first one is, is making sure that you've got clarity and consistency in your data model of what you want to be able to track in between Volume, volume conversion points throughout your customer's journey, right? And then also the, the the micro conversion points within within those volume. So in between awareness and education, or through the sales process, you, you've got those things tightly aligned, and you know what what's working in the markets that you're in. So you can start measuring and seeing the differences in the new markets you're in. The the, the next one is shameless plug for Gong, get Gong, right? Get Gong or, or something like it to be able to actually then qualitatively interrogate the quantitative data, right? To be able to understand what people are saying and how they're saying it. Because it, it could be that the data is showing that that sales cycle is showing long and you're getting concerned and worried that your investment's not going to be returned. You've got a leaky bucket scenario, where in fact, if you listen through actually what customers are saying, you can find out something completely different. You want to have the data model, but also you want to really listen to what customers are actually saying within those conversations with your reps to tell the truth of the story and, and to have more of a holistic view of what's what. So it's a combination of looking at the data as well as making sure you, you, you're following the customer's voice. Now that you've been at Payhawk, you guys have expanded. What, what makes you excited about the, the near future, the long future with Payhawk? This organization's product and engineering culture is second to none. And we're building the same from a go-to-market standpoint. We do roughly 300 releases a year. And I've never seen a company ship so much quality product, right? We incorporate customer voice into what we're doing. And some of the early decisions that the, the team made in building the initial foundation of our platform is going to allow us to do some things that we think that nobody else in our space is going to be able to do for quite some time. So there's, we're just getting started, right? It's just like we're in, still in first gear. And whilst we're one of the youngest companies in our space in, out of Europe, I, I think we're quickly moving into market leader position, especially in the segments that we choose to, to compete in. And you know, the addressable market for what the problems that Payhawk solves is massive, right? It's basically any company that's there that has people spending money on behalf of it and they use accounting software to be able to reconcile those accounts has pain that we can solve. 
I'm really excited personally about moving up market into the enterprise space and going after some of the legacy players where we think that there's some serious pain that we can solve and some serious upside for, for payoff. Paul, this has been fantastic. The one question we love to ask before we say our goodbyes, it's my favorite question. If you could sure. go back to any time, what advice would the wiser, older, better looking Paul give his younger? There's really two, two things. One is you are not your number, right? As a human, you are not your number, right? And you know, because when things are great, when you're working in, in, in a revenue function, you feel great, right? You're hitting your numbers and you feel great. And when you don't, you don't feel so great, but that doesn't define you as a human. And I think that people need to separate those two things. And, and the thing that I'd also tell that younger self, and this is where I still have a bit of a neutral conflict is being authentic. You want to bring your own true self to work. You want to be your own true self. You don't have to try to be anybody else. And it's the, the conflation in between, in between that, if that makes sense, you would, whilst you're, you're a human doing a human's job, you need to connect with humans on a human level. That's the most important under of anything is, is the, what I would tell myself 20 years ago. Because I think it would have saved some of my earlier challenges where I thought I had to be someone else to be accepted, right? And it comes back to round robin to the start of the conversation of you know the, the challenges of growing up in, in multiple environments as a kid. I'm not sure how you've dealt with that through moving to different countries, but that's what we do. That's what I would say. I'm, I'm going to dig in on the first one just because it's we, we have a, we have a lot of people listening to this call, and I've, I've struggled with this where you allow your identity to become your performance, right? And it's like really, really, really hard to remove one from the other, right? Like where. Even you get home on a Friday or Saturday, you're still thinking, oh my God, like, what did I do about X, Y, and Z? And it's not healthy, right? Um, what, what have you found as ways to cope with this or like to help with this? I got taught early, but I didn't learn as well. And, and I'm still trying to learn is you know, what can you control versus what you can't. And you know, if you're familiar with Stoic principles, like Marcus Aurelius of how the ancient Greeks and Romans, you know, this, this philosophy, which is a lot around what you can control and what you can't, right? The Stoic principles. And so I've been reading, I've been diving more in, into that personally lately. Because what I've realized is that almost has to be a daily exercise of you daily have to remind yourself, right? It's daily meditations of, of re- learning that, right? Because if it's outside of your control, what are you going to get out of worrying from it? Just a real quick story. I was late to catch a flight, got on the highway, and there's a traffic jam. And you get that huge level of anxiety, right? Like, I'm in traffic jam, I'm going to lose my flight. And just at the right time on the radio, UK, there's a guy, Chris Evans, on the radio show, he had some psychologists on talking about anxiety. And But realizing that anxiety is only a negative thing if you treat it as a negative thing, right? Because again, what you can control with it is how you deal with anxiety. And so if you do something, if you take action against that part of anxiety, you can reduce it greatly. Because anxiety is not actually, by definition, a bad thing. It's how you react to it. So the same way in, in how, what your number is and how you feel, like if you feel down because you didn't hit your number, if you did everything that you could to be able to hit your number, then guess what? you did everything you could to hit your number, right? You should feel good about that, right? And not feel negative about it. Hopefully that gives some context of my growing philosophy around that subject. No, no, it gives it gives great context. The, the, tough, the tough part has always been putting it in action, right? It's, exactly. uh, it's easier said than done, but it gives, I think it gives great context. <laughs> well, well, Paul, thanks again for coming on the show. You've been a great friend over the last couple of months. For everybody listening, we will put Paul's social media, everything else in, in the show notes. Reach out. Thank you for, for, for being with us. And until next time, well, we wish you the absolute best. Be safe and catch you on the next episode. Thanks, Paul. Thanks so much, Boya. Cheers. Oh, thank you.